Welcome to Safety Talk. Personal safety expert Pete Canavan shares his insights and interviews experts who provide simple and effective tips, techniques, and technologies to keep you safe and secure both online and off. Here's Pete. Hello, and welcome to Safety Talk. I'm your personal safety expert, Pete Canavan. And today we're going to jump right in with, so where does it end? More senseless killings this weekend from deranged individuals. We want answers. We want solutions. We want to figure out what can be done to stop it. The problem is there is no one answer. And it's very, very frustrating because when someone gets it in their head that the only way to do, you know, to have them be, do something of significance is to kill innocent people, it doesn't matter what they use as a weapon. You know, the, the gun always takes the, the fall for this, but, you know, it doesn't matter if it's a gun, a knife, a bat, or a car. We've even seen people, you know, use vehicles to commit mass murder. But, you know, it could just as easily be anything else. And the solution is not to ban the device. The solution is... I feel, I mean, there's a lot of different components to it, but the solution is to, first of all, pay closer attention to the behavior of these people. Uh, we're finding more details out about the, uh, the one individual in Ohio, and he was doing some very, very disturbing things in high school. Why he wasn't monitored a little more closely is anybody's guess. But social media is a huge indicator of what people are thinking, how they're interacting, what they're posting, the groups they're with, et cetera, et cetera. The other part of the solution is to try and, you know, understand what it is that makes someone snap and go off the deep end because this is a place that most of us just cannot fathom. We can't even begin to remotely understand this. And so with the case of the, the one and other individual from this weekend, the police actually were able to capture them. So maybe through some of that, that you know, interrogating some of the, the conversations, some of the information they may be able to glean from this individual, maybe we'll be able to draw some sort of, some sort of picture, maybe some, some conclusions, maybe some parallels that uh, might help us in the future, if nothing else. And then, of course, the third prong, I think, is to really to provide help to those who need it as soon as possible. You know, people can be in various types of pain. It could be emotional pain, it could be mental anguish, it could be physical trauma. Most of us just cannot relate to that deep, troubling thoughts that may run through the minds of some of these people. You know, we all have problems, we all have issues, we all have the stresses that life, you know, places on us uh, for one reason or another. But nobody has the right to take the life of an innocent person. So don't think it's not your problem because it's all of our problem here. It could happen to anyone at any time. And if the tragedies that we've witnessed over and over have taught us anything, it's that no matter who you are, no matter what you're doing, no matter where you are, you have an individual responsibility to pay attention to the people, to the places, to the objects that are around you so that you're prepared to move or to act or to fight in order to survive the unthinkable. Now, you're not being paranoid if you ask, you know, what if blank happens when I'm at blank, right? What if an active shooter happens when I'm at the supermarket, right? You're just simply being prepared. You're enabling yourself with a potential solution that you can have at the ready. So when the unspeakable occurs to you or around you, you've already formulated an answer in your mind. So you already know immediately what you're going to do without having to think about what should I do? You know, we don't like to think about this, but seconds count. You know, in mere seconds, people died. Many people died. And 
It could have been worse, but the bottom line is nobody should have died. Now, of course, there's nothing that can happen if a stray bullet comes through the wall and kills you. Obviously, nobody can do anything to stop that. But short of that, there are typically signs that we need to pay closer attention to in our very distracted society. And so pay attention to what's going on around you. Look for warning signs. It's better to be a little bit maybe more careful than not because we see what happens when we're not. So stay safe, my friends. Now, our guest today has been in the security industry for over 30 years. Um, he's performed in the U.S. military, in corporate America, as well as in private security. And his experience comes from his security functions as they are related to executive protection services, as well as event security, logistics security, and much more. He's highly regarded as an international leader in logistics security, as well as in risk and crisis management. And this gentleman has had the opportunity to develop and implement logistics security programs for large multinational organizations with high value assets. He supervised large security teams both in the U.S. and abroad, uh, and he's performed global audits for Fortune 50 companies. So his diverse career has given him a perspective on security that offers solutions that can be executed to make an immediate impact on organizations. And so it's my pleasure to welcome George Wheeler, Director of Operations for ShadowTrack 24-7 to Safety Talk. Welcome, George. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you very much, Peter. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. You know, you and I met at uh, the ISC West conference out in uh, Las Vegas back in April. Hard to believe it's been <laughs> four months already almost. Uh, but I've been wanting to get you on the show so you could share, share your expertise on things. And, you know, with our audience and also, you know, talk a little bit about what's, what's happened currently. Uh, but I, I want to start off talking about your latest project, which is something called Protecting Beacons of Hope. And, you know, it's with a heavy heart that we do today's show, obviously in the aftermath of what happened over the weekend. Uh, but, you know, the show must go on and we must do what we can do to mitigate these tragedies and educate the public. So tell us a little bit about that and how it, it relates to, I guess, it's churches and synagogues and places of worship. Absolutely. Thank you very uh, much for bringing up protecting because of hope, because as we see from what happened this weekend, how incidents can absolutely destroy a community. We've seen from some of these incidents that happened at houses of worship, how these, these individuals who go in to commit these atrocities, they're looking for soft targets and they're looking for uh, places they know they can go in and affect the most damage uh, the most carnage, I guess if you want to put it that way. And Houses of Worship definitely fit that bill. Uh, we've had it in Pittsburgh in the synagogue this year. and We've had it uh, in Texas last year, uh, Tennessee. There's been a lot of shootings, and they just seem to be getting more violent. And, you know, you, you mentioned a few things in your monologue that are very important. It's not the device in which is used in, in, in the incident, um, because now it's really just, it's not just an active shooter. It's an active killer. So right. you have to be careful, not just inside your facilities, but in your parking lot. So we'll talk about some of that today. But Protecting Beacons of Hope was really designed because there's so many houses of worship out there that they can't afford to bring in consultants. They don't have security teams and they have to engage their communities to help them have security and safety awareness. And we want to give them the tools, the knowledge and the skills they need where they can bring people together who might have some security experience or at least some safety and security common sense and be able to take the information they receive from us to build an effective security uh, risk management program. 
That's awesome because, you know, a lot of places, they don't have the funds. You know, we've seen a lot of, you know, churches, they're struggling with, you know, membership. You know, people have gotten away from religion uh, in the past years. And I think a lot of that has to do with, particularly with regard to the Catholic faith, all of the scandals that have happened around, you know, the sexual abuse by, by priests. You know, here are people that, you know, the parishioners are supposed to be looking up. You know, you're supposed to be teaching your children, you know, these are holy people. They, you know, they're close to God. They're, you know, do what they say. You know, they, they know what they're talking about, et cetera. But now we've seen that that's not always the case. Uh, and it's scary and it's sad. And, you know, I'm in Pennsylvania and there's a huge problem here. It's been in the news a lot recently. And I think that has a lot to do with it. So not only are they struggling with some problems inside the organization themselves in, in that regard, but now you've got dropping numbers of the people that are attending services. So if that's happening, you've got less donations coming in, you've got even less funds to run the parish, to do, you know, the different things that you have to do to make it operate. And so that's that's a really great uh, cause to look at and say, hey, you know, you don't need to have, you know, thousands of dollars extra every week to hire a private security detail to come in and, and you know, police your parking lot in your church because who has that, right? Exactly. So, um, so tell us a little bit more about it, it, the education standpoint. You, you bring the whole community together. How, do, how does that work? There's a little bit more information there maybe. Sure. One of the things we want to do is we want to provide a lot of the information online. We have a, a website that they can go to and they can join a community because ultimately community is where a lot of the information will be gained by these individuals. Uh, also, when you have community, your area, it may not be something as, as devastating as an active shooter situation. It could be a flood in your area. And then if you've never had a flood in your area, and I don't mean two inches of water in your basement, I'm talking a couple of feet of water in your facility. If you've never had that happen, you'd want to have somebody you can reach out to and then ask them, hey, you know, you were in the Midwest this year when they had the massive floods. How did you recover from this? Obviously, you know, insurance plays a part of that. But, um, you know, the reason the whole program is called Protecting Beacons of Hope is because we look at organizations that are really beacons of hope within your communities. So schools, houses of worship, hospitals, places like that, they need to get back up and running as soon as possible because those types of institutions are – we, we think they're, they're leadership positions within communities. So we want to help them get back on their feet, get to back up and running as soon as they can so they can start servicing the communities. So, you know, when you bring them all together online for this training, uh, you, you keep it inexpensive for them and you can kind of reach a much larger audience. Yeah. And, you know, you brought up something that's so true and people don't think about because so much news is, and so much attention is given to active shooters. But in all reality, the percentage and the likelihood of any one of us being a victim of that sort of event is very, very small compared to things like acts of nature, you know, whether it's a fire or a flood or a tornado or any other, you know, act of nature. We have a much, you know, greater threat from those sort of things. But a lot of the, I think it's pushed to the wayside. And, you know, a flood is a perfect example because in this area, they had some, some really bad flood back in the flood of 1972 year. We've had a couple of close calls here. They built the, levy, the levees up. And the last time it happened, I mean, literally you could walk up and put your hand right over the edge and touch the water. And it was like that far from the top. So, <laughs> I mean, talk about dodging a bullet, you know, no pun intended, but they dodged a huge, huge one because had it just gotten a little bit more rain or had, you know, there been some sort of breach, 
who knows if the area would even come back. And so when you've got two, three, four, five, six, ten feet of water, we've seen ridiculous numbers in some of these floods. How do you, you know, recover from that? And so having a, the ability to reach out and have somebody that can help you sort of get back up and running as quickly as possible is, is so important. So that's awesome. Uh, so good luck with that. And uh, please let me know if there's anything I can do to, to help you or, uh, you know, spread the word on my area here. Uh, now, you have a lot of experience in crisis management, risk management, and, uh, and how you can, you know, protect your organization regardless of size. And that's kind of what we're talking a little bit with this, the Protecting Beacons of Hope. Uh, it's obviously certainly a challenge when you're trying to protect uh, a person or a building or something else that has limited resources. Um, maybe you could start before we get into maybe some of the specifics, but give us sort of maybe a high level view of how you would make sort of an initial analysis of a company, of a venue, of a church, that sort of thing. And then maybe we can get into some of the, the details behind that. Absolutely. So, you know, the biggest thing that a church has to understand is kind of what their risks are. And a lot of them, really don't even go that far. They're in the business of, if you want to say that, they're in the business of providing people that connection with God. And, and when you go to church, you've really, you've let your guard down and you're going to a venue that you're assuming is, is safe and secure. One of the most interesting things about houses of worship, just as an example, is when you go into a house of worship and you start talking about creating security teams and and actually having these programs where you're, even if you wanted to practice um, an active killer type situation, you get a lot of pushback. You know, a lot of people are saying, well, this is kind of against the scriptures. This is, you know, um, we don't want to scare the, the people who are coming in here. And you have to get that through leadership first. And I, I see that as a really big challenge. That's something you could spend a lot of time talking to leadership, and they're going to give you all the reasons why, um, you know, we always think it's not going to happen here. Um, you know, they know their, they know their community, they know their congregation, they, they know the area so well. And, and you know, those types of things will never happen here. But, but that's what every single person ever says after exactly. the event is exactly. I never thought it would happen to me. I never thought it would happen here. And that's what people are saying this weekend. Oh my God, I was in a, that Walmart, you know, every you know month for the last 10 years. And I never thought that would happen, but yet here we are. And I think the scary part of that is it happens in a community and because of the media, they make it feel like it happened in our community. They push it to the front of the media. They're, they cover it 24 seven. They cover it from every different angle. They put pictures of all the victims up. They tell the victim stories. They, they go through this whole process of making it real to you so that you'll continue watching the news. Right. And, and what happens is, you know, churches or houses of worship, it could be any house of worship. They, they, they see that it happens to other ones and they know that other house of worship thought that it could never happen to them, but it did. But then within a couple of days, a new story breaks, they go off onto something else and everybody just goes back to where they were. And it's the same thing with this Walmart situation. That could have been any Walmart in any community. And, and right. you know, when people walk into those, just like you were saying, now you have to start paying attention to things. Uh, that kid that walked in with a trench coat in an 80 degree weather you have to kind of wonder what's underneath that trench coat. And, you know, we'll talk a little bit more about some of this stuff later, but really that's where you have to start though, is you have to, you have to bring the awareness up within the leadership so that they buy into the fact that one of their jobs isn't just bringing people to God. One of their jobs is keeping the people who come to their facility safe and secure. And again, it's not just about the active shooter. They have to understand, you know, the floods, the fires, you know, arson is a big thing for houses of worship. 
There's um, so many threats, so many threats, and so much attention is given to the active killer, active shooter scenario, and not enough, I feel, is being taught, as I said in the beginning, about individual responsibility. You know, hey, you're coming to my facility. I don't care what that facility is. You could be coming into my business. You could be coming into my church. You could be coming into my whatever. But when you come in, you should have some sort of, for lack of a better word, I guess some sort of protocol or some sort of standard educational briefing to people that says, hey, look, you know, we've got some protocols and things that we, we, we need to just go over. You know, it's not going to take long, but the reason why we do it is because X, Y, and Z has happened and ABC can occur here. So you have these different situations. You can talk about them. You don't have to get anybody freaked out or paranoid. Unfortunately, that sometimes happens because it's almost like an admission that there is a problem. Yeah. But I think when you, when you take a step back and say, no, look, it's just because these things have occurred that we have to make sure that you're aware of our procedures, of what to do, where to go, if something were to occur, whatever that something is, right? Absolutely. And there's something I used to say when I would train businesses uh, on when, and when a crisis happens, if you're not prepared for that crisis, but you knew there was a potential threat. So every house of worship right now knows that it's a potential threat. Yes, the risk factor rating may be extremely low, but it is a potential threat. So if you have a potential threat and you don't do anything about it to address or mitigate those threats or to ensure that you have a, some kind of plan in the event that something happens for responding and recovering from those threats and you didn't keep those people safe, what I used to tell people in business all the time, which is even more relevant, I suppose, for houses of worship was if the media finds out that the situation was actually exacerbated because you didn't have any plans in place to protect the people, the media will crucify you and that will happen no matter where you are. And, and the last thing a church needs is to have the media crucify them. <laughs> so Yeah, no pun intended. <laughs> no pun intended. Yeah. It's true because, I mean, I, in fact, I said something very similar recently where when, a, when a, one of these events, I'm just going to call them events, happens at a school or at a church, uh, we tend to say, oh, you know, the poor victims, they, they didn't, you know, they, they couldn't help themselves, etc. But when something happens to a business, it's like, why didn't you do something about it? Exactly. And so the responsibility is weird. It, it kind of, it flips from one to the other, depending on where that event occurred. And I think the narrative has to be changed, as you're saying, like, we all have to understand that no matter what, no matter where, no matter who, you need to ask yourself, do I know what to do in a certain situation? And if the answer to that is no, go educate yourself, get some answers, talk to somebody. And if you can't get answers at your company or your church or your business or your whatever, your school, then you need to you know, sort of get other people to back you on this and say, hey, look, you know, we're concerned. We don't know what to do. Somebody tell us what to do. What should we do? What could we do? Is there something we could do? And, and then take it from there. Absolutely. Now, why, where is it that most companies fall short in this process, in their risk planning, in their crisis planning? Because we've seen them fall short. You know, some do great jobs and, you know, they go over the top and they drill and drill and drill. And you were being somebody who were in the military, um, you know, thank you for your service, by the way. Uh, you know that training is everything. And when you train and you train and you train, and when something happens, the training kicks in, 
and you can get through whatever that happens to be. So I don't know if maybe that's where you want to go with this, but where, where do you see that most companies are falling short here? No, you're, you're absolutely right on that. The number one area where I see organizations fall short consistently is they don't, they don't have engagement, right? They, they, they may go out there, they may create some crisis plans, but they don't actually practice them. And that is a big part of, of having those plans. Now in the military, that's all we did. I mean, when you were out on post, you, we, we practiced every night, but we were talking about some high level scenarios. It would always, what, what, you know, it's kind of fun sometimes to do those real, you know, they're less likely to happen, but they're, they're kind of, again, they're kind of fun scenarios to run through. You know, the Russians just jumped over the fence and what are you going to do? You always yeah. play that what if game. But well, yeah, because you get a rush and the adrenaline's flowing and the endorphins and, you know, it's, it's, an, it's a little, little bit of an excitement, but yet you know you're in a controlled environment and it's training. Yeah. So absolutely, engagement is the biggest thing that I see organizations fall short in. You know, and it's not just engagement from – the reason I think that organizations don't train a lot is because they don't have that buy-in from the leadership. Uh, yes, leadership knows that they have to have these business continuity and these crisis plans and they have to have risk – especially enterprise risk management. But you see a lot of CEOs, especially of larger organizations, you know, they, they see their responsibility as growing that company. They're, they're responsible for the profit of that organization. They're responsible for value back to the shareholders. You know, and, and you're hoping that they're not thinking this way, but some of these large organizations, if somebody comes to my facility and actually does something dangerous, I'm protected because I probably have an executive protection team that's going to keep me safe. And you know, some, some CEOs are like rock stars or athletes. They have very large egos. So that's, that's who they're most concerned about. Uh, we would like to think they're more concerned about their employers or employees. But, um, you know, you, if you don't get that buy-in and that engagement from those CEOs, you're going to end up with a plan that has no substance. You're, the employees will know right away whether or not they're, they're valued, I think, when, when, you, when top-down it's not engaged in. And that's scary because, you know, they, they might be thinking, I hope the stock doesn't take a hit, <laughs> you know? And, well, you know and that, that, you're right. You're absolutely right. And, and one of the worst things, I think, you remember the, um, the, the BP crisis, the deep water uh, oil spill? Yep. And the CEO famously said, I just want my life back. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> you know, there's a classic example of a CEO that's more concerned about himself than he was about the event that was actually occurring. Yeah, that's unfortunately a good example, <laughs> you know. Um, so for safety and security professionals, people that are out there that are trying to protect different venues, different establishments, whether it's sports arenas, whether it's churches, whether it's businesses, whether it's stores, retail, whatever, what is the biggest key to success for those people? Is it the training? Is it the planning? It's actually, I, I believe, uh, it's your network. As a security professional, we're being asked to do more things with less people around us. And what ends up happening is, you know, I, I see this in organizations, especially some of these pharmaceutical companies that I work with daily. Uh, they started out with a team of 10 people that, you know, you'd go to the, their, their offices and you'd meet with them. And then over the last 10 years, that team of 10 people is down to three. And when you talk to those people who are in corporate security, you know, they actually have more responsibility with less people. Your network becomes so important because you can't be the expert at event security and 
every other you know cybersecurity and you know you, you got physical security, but then you got fraud and you got everything else that's being thrown at these individuals. If you don't have somebody you can reach out to, if you don't have a good network that you can just reach out and say, hey, you know, I need a little assistance here. My company's having this large event. I've been tasked with, you know, organizing the security for it, uh, mostly because there's nobody else around here to do it but me. But, um, you know, can I get a little help from my network? And if you don't have that network in place, you're going to struggle greatly because you, you really, you can't be everything all the time. But also... You know, I have a famous saying also because I'm the director of operations for Shadow Track 247, which is a logistics transportation company, uh, security company. And we always say if calling 911 is your crisis response plan, then you're in a lot of trouble. So if you don't have a network with law enforcement and you can't get a response if something gets stolen, uh, even if you're at a house of worship and you don't know your local law enforcement, you haven't invited them in to see your facility in case they have to respond, then not building that network is going to be your biggest detriment. So from what I'm hearing, really what most security professionals in any capacity should do is be making sure that they're reaching out to those who would be involved in any sort of crisis and establishing that a relationship and getting to know them, letting them know what their plans are, maybe getting them a copy of their plan if they have one, or bringing them in and helping them you know, develop that plan or bringing in you know, some outside help that does this sort of thing that can come in and, in and objectively say, okay, you know, here are where you have some vulnerabilities, here are where some things should be hardened, here are some things that you need to look out for. Absolutely. Right? I mean, your, your local network is absolutely everything. If you're a facility manager or something of that nature, and then the, the, the more responsibility you have on a broader scale, regional, global, national, whatever it might be, then your network needs to expand relative to your responsibilities. That makes perfect sense. You know, the bigger you are, the bigger your network needs to be. Absolutely. Interesting. Now, we can't think of everything, right? <laughs> Things are always, you know, there's always something that's going to be overlooked. Um, what is some area that you would say, based on your experience, is something that's often overlooked that we could maybe hone people's attention back in on? I think we actually, this is kind of a two-part thing. Because we, we, we sort of mentioned this. The biggest thing that is overlooked, obviously, is that, execution of the planning. Um, you know, when you go out and you create those plans and you don't execute them, I, I had a, um, an individual who came to one of my trainings and he went, went through the entire training. When he went back to his organization, um, he knew that he, okay, he was tasked with, the reason he came to my training was he was already tasked with creating the, the, the uh, risk management crisis response plans for his organization. So they sent him to my training, goes through that, goes back, and, and then when he goes back, they basically wanted him to create all the plans. <laughs> and each organization, you know, whether it's operations, sales, um, customer service, they, were, they would just kind of come in at the end and sign off on their piece of that. Right. So you know, what's overlooked is how do you get everybody involved in those plans? And uh, everybody's busy. And we realize that risk and crisis management is generally something that everybody thinks is somebody else's job. But in, in truth, you know, we always say this in security, security is everybody's responsibility. Well, in a sense, risk and crisis management planning is too, because if you don't know what your role is in a crisis, then you're a victim. And everybody has to get that through their head. No, that's a, that's a great statement right there. And part of what I do in 
the cybersecurity realm is helping businesses create cybersecurity program development and risk planning and analysis in that realm. Because as an IT consultant for so many years, I've been doing a lot with IT. And as we've seen over the last you know decade or so, things have gotten a lot worse. You know, these threats have gotten worse. The criminals, the cyber criminals have gotten a lot more crafty. They are figuring out all these different ways that they can infiltrate networks. And the biggest one of them is basically by fooling people, right? I mean, it's the, the human component of it tends to be the breakdown. And so if you're not being educated about how you can be fooled or tricked by somebody, it doesn't have to be something on your computer. You could get a phone call. And yeah. somebody pretends to be from another division and, and they start throwing all these names around because they just went to the website and they read everybody on the board of directors. And they went, oh, well, you know, George told me this and Pete told me this and, you know, and, 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 you know, Mary and Susie and Joe are all on board. And you're thinking, oh my God, they're throwing these names out like they know these people. I better, I better get on this, right? So that component I think is, is a one that's really overlooked, but Every department, as you're saying, has its own individual quirks, right? If this department is affected by an event, right, we'll just call it an event, how is that affecting the rest of the business? You know, how are you going to recover from that? You know, is that affecting how orders are taken? Is it affecting how orders are being fulfilled? Is it being, is it affecting how people are being paid, right? So you have all these moving pieces and when it doesn't make money, Right. Yeah, I mean, essentially absolutely. people are like, well, you know, they do the bare minimum and they sign off and they say, yeah, 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 we got our plan, you know, and God forbid you need that plan because you probably don't have a great plan. You know, you're probably not practicing it frequently. Right. Because that's the best way to make sure a plan is going to work is to put your feet to the fire. Right. Absolutely. What happens because you want to be able to do that in a semi-controlled environment before it happens for real. Because if it fails when you're testing, thank God it failed during testing. You know, and now you can take a step back and say, okay, where were the failures? Well, how can we fix this? Um, and so, yeah, that's a, that's a huge, a huge one. And, and again, it's because, you know, it doesn't make us money. So we're, anytime we're spending doing this, we're not generating revenue. And, and Peter, think of that, you know, you talk about that in the cybersecurity world and, you know, IT and the cybersecurity personnel, they may understand what social engineering is and how people can call in and get numbers and information, uh, not not by sending you a link or phishing or spoofing or spamming or whatever it might be, but does that get taught to the physical security officer who's working at the lobby or the building services coordinator who's working in the lobby that these phone calls that are coming in might be people looking for information? Because mm -hmm. how many times have you legitimately called an organization and realized this person's giving me information I didn't even ask for? Um, <laughs> so imagine what they would do if you actually prompted them a little bit with some information. What could you learn? Yep. And guess what? The criminals are learning that. The criminals already know it. And like, and the two worlds have become so close now. I mean, and, and that was very evident at the show at IC West is, is the, the blending and the melding of the physical security world and the cybersecurity world have just become, they're, they're not quite one and the same, but they're getting to the point where they pretty much are. Because one thing that is occurring in the cyber realm is going to help maybe prevent or mitigate or thwart a problem in the physical world. And so now all of these technologies are, we're relying on them more. They're doing more for us and it's going to have a direct impact and what is occurring with the boots on the ground personnel. And it's, it's, yeah, like you said, that training has to be at every level within an organization, love it or hate it. You got to do it. 
right? <laughs> yes, absolutely. You know, and if you think about it, you know, years ago, you had millions of employees when they left work, they just walked away from their desk and they were detached from work. Nowadays, you know, we've got this phone and it's attached to our hip and we take it everywhere with us. We don't really leave. Well, okay. So there are millions of employees who don't really leave work anymore. Right. You take it home with you. But, and a lot of, a lot of organizations have policies where you're, your personal phone is also your kind of your work phone. And some organizations, they just give you a stipend for your personal phone and you can use it for work. Um, But how secure is that? And, and, you know, I'm I'm not in the cybersecurity world, but I wouldn't want to have to deal with how am I going to, how am I going to keep this information secure when people are calling? It's a huge challenge because, you know, (laughs) bottom line, you know, I mean, people are installing all kinds of apps on their phone. Half Mm -hmm. these apps, they don't know what they are. I don't know if you you, you heard of the the one major problem that was a few years ago, but, you know, everybody was downloading these free free, um, flashlight apps for their phone Uh before they came on the phone. Well, something like eight out of the top 10 downloaded fla- free flashlight apps, say that 10 times fast, right? Free yeah. flashlight apps um, <laughs> were from a Chinese, some Chinese companies, and they were malware and spyware on your phone. So they were absolutely monitoring everything, key logging, everything that you're doing on your phone, and you just thought you put this little innocent you know, flashlight app on there. And so the one gentleman who discovered this was occurring, uh, he created a... A, a privacy flashlight app and I put it on my, I, I know I think Apple has them, but you know, my Android has it too. And it's called privacy flashlight because his phone was doing some weird things and he took it to his IT department. He said, um, why is my phone doing all of this stuff? And they dug into it and they were like, oh, you've got this app on here and it's sending all this data system server in China. And he was like, what? <laughs> so he decided to create his own. It's called privacy flashlight. It's free, but it doesn't do anything but turn on the light on your phone. You know, yeah. that's what you think these other ones doing. So they get very, very insidious with how, how these things can, can, you know, enter our lives and basically start building these profiles. I mean, I'm not even going to get into like the Alexas and all that other kind of stuff. But. No, absolutely. You have to wonder <laughs> though, when, when you download and a flashlight app, why does it need to know your location? Right. <laughs> why does it need access to your microphone? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You know? Light on, light off. <laughs> right. It's, it's crazy. Um, now, one of the challenges in both the physical realm and the cyber realm is culture and the culture behind a company and how that company and that corporate culture can absolutely have an impact on the effectiveness of a security plan. Because if the security plan runs counter to the corporate culture, it's not going to get done. Right. And so let's talk about that a little bit is how, how do you build a culture of safety and security and, and, do so with those two different sort of sides of the coin. You know, you have a company that might be a, a cutting edge IT company that's doing a lot of programming and development and they kind of live on the edge and, you know, they have to take risks because that's what the, the product's about. And then on the other side, you might have a company that deals with, you know, finances and investments or medical records and there is no risk, you know, appetite what's, what, at all there, you know. So how do we, you know, build a culture that allows companies of all flavors and and risk tolerances to be effective? That's a big question. I know. Sorry. (laughs) No, that's fine. It's interesting that when you talk about that, you have so many different organizations that if you ask 10 different people, how do you build a safety and security uh, culture within your organization? uh, You're going to get 10 different answers, but kind of this overarching, if you look at that 
across all businesses. And now you, know, you mentioned banks, things that are very highly regulated, high security, um, or I should say high value products that are being manufactured. You know, those organizations, they really have a good culture of safety and security, a lot of them, because it's, it's regulated. They have to have that. Right. But then you have the Facebooks, the uh, alphabets, the, the apples of the world that hire um, a lot of millennials. And, uh, you know, they're very relaxed and they don't want to pressure people and they want to keep everything very low key. But it doesn't matter what kind of organization you're in. You have to have some kind of culture of safety and security and it has to be built from the top down. It has to be rewarded and it has to be enforced. So if you have those things in place and if even if it's an apple, if, 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 if it's required that you have a badge on while you're in the building after you proxy into a door and they see the CEO or the C-suite walking around, they don't have their badges. If they try to stop them and ask them where their badges are, they're, they're chastised for that. Then it's, it, that's going to permeate throughout the entire organization. So though, that's really the key right there, though, is it has to be from the top down. It has to be enforced and it has to be rewarded. And the other thing I would say is it has to start from day one in, in, or, in your organization's orientation. That was a little hard to say, too. Yeah. Um, oh, no. From day one, person walking in the door, they need to be educated. Look, you know, here's how to do your job. But guess what? Here's our security. Here's our safety procedures. This is what you can and cannot do. This is what's expected of you, you know, and have that that sort of reward versus, you know, punishment. Look, if you do this and you follow it, you know, maybe you'll be rewarded with who knows what, right? There may be some sort of, yeah, some sort of incentive so that they, they have a, a positive feeling about it, right? Not just, you know, you're going to be punished for not doing it, but, you know, you'll be rewarded if you, if you adhere to this and you're not written up for the first, whatever, 90 days a year or something like that, right? Um, but yeah, it does need to start from the top down because people that are in C-suite offices, they may feel like the rules don't apply to them because they're the CEO, the CTO, the CIO, the whatever, and why do everybody knows who I am? Why do I have to wear my badge? Well, because the policies say you have to wear your badge. And if you yeah. don't wear it, why does the person we just hired this morning have to not? Maybe they don't want to wear it because they see you not, like you said. And so there has to, you know, there's obviously a, uh, you got to kind of handle some of these people with kid gloves, right? <laughs> because, yeah. you know, they may not take too kindly to that. But look, you know, I think the educating of those individuals and stressing to them the importance of being a good role model for the people that are in the organizations that are below them. And that, look, you know, I'm not too good to wear a badge. I have my badge. I have, you know, I adhere to whatever the, the policies and procedures say because I take the safety and security of my company seriously, period. And that should be the answer that, that every single one of them gives. And, and think about the, the new employee who goes in and they get that heartfelt talk by the HR manager about how the company values safety and security and how it is part of their culture. But the number one thing that will kill that, that culture is apathy. So they, they get a strong dose of it their first day, maybe even their first week, but then they see, the, they see the people who have been there a while or even worse, the people who have been there a while come back to them and say, ah, you know, don't worry about that. that they, they tell you you have to do this, but this is how it really is. So that's why, again, if it's not enforced, then you're going to have a hard time having a culture of safety and security. So how does a company show that to the employees? One, you have to make it part of your mission. I think you, know, you have to tell employees that you do value this and it has to stay kind of upfront all the time. You know, one of the things when you look at how do you, how do you prove that you value 
safety and security is you put it in your mission statement. If you put that in your mission statement and you talk about it and whenever you have company communications, you're reinforcing it, then you'll have a good culture with it. Excellent. Yeah, the vision and mission of the company are huge when it comes to establishing that corporate culture because that's what defines it. And so yeah. by defining it adequately and making sure that there is that component of safety and security somehow intertwined within that, and then like you said, like reinforced through every you know, different company communication comes out, the company newsletter, you know, maybe you have like a safety corner feature in your newsletter, whatever it is, it's always in the back of people's minds that, hey, you know, it's my responsibility to make sure that things are being done that are safe, that nobody's being put into situations that are uh, uncomfortable or dangerous or, you know, or worse. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a tough uh, tough thing to do, especially when people don't like to talk about it. Absolutely. And that's funny. I say reinforce it. When I say that, a lot of people think, oh, that means you have to discipline people if they don't do it. Well, there is positive reinforcement too. And that's why I say put it out in the company newsletters and keep it in the forefront. Talk about it at all levels of the organization. Show that you value it. And then that'll catch on within your organization. So let's talk a little bit. Um, we're cranking through this here. Um, what concerns you? from a societal standpoint about the trends that are out there and the ability or inability to be effective at identifying the risks that are out there today? You alluded to this in the very beginning of this podcast, and that was people are so afraid now of offending other people. You're afraid of asking questions. And that's the number one thing that really concerns me about society today. And when you look at... Uh, a lot of airports in, in other countries, they'll do behavior analysis. And I know we do it in our, our airport too, mm -hmm. but you know, try to try to do that in your business or, you know, start talking about these things in, you know, in public. Um, people are saying, well, you're offending me. You know, you're, you just, you're, you're grouping me with these other groups of people. You know, there has to be some level of profiling though. I think within every organization or in public, when I'm out in public, you know, I'm always asking questions and, uh, you know, I've lived in a lot of different countries too, and I've always haven't always lived every you know someplace where it's safe every day either. So, you know, the military one of the one of the best things the military does for you as a 17 year old kid going in the military is they get you to start asking that what if question everywhere you go, and they show you lots of movies of you know military guys getting hijacked you know in foreign countries. Mm -hmm. So they, they they really ingrained that into you. But I brought that home with me. I don't go to a restaurant and put my back to the door still to this day. Um, but, and it's not because, you know, I, I just, this, this, this establishment has never had a problem. The people who come here are, they're, they're awesome people. They would never do anything like this. Um, I'm not profiling anybody. I'm just being safe. I have good security awareness. You know, I think the, the biggest thing with this now that I'm seeing, not only are we afraid to ask questions, but look at our political um, environment and our political rhetoric these days. Every time a politician is asked a tough question, that they can't answer or they're getting backed into a corner, the first thing they yell is, you're being racist or you're being a bigot or, you know, whatever it might be. And when the media gets a hold of that, they want to push that into our faces and they want to run with that also because they're trying to sell advertisement. And that's becoming a real problem for the public because when they see everybody else doing it, guess what everybody's doing in business now? If you have a person who's not 
performing well at work and you want to bring up their performance to them, you're being racist. Um, it's a, it's becoming insane. It absolutely is becoming insane. I don't know what, what is going to happen to, to change or to stop this or to flip this the other way because it's getting completely out of hand because nobody wants to admit that they aren't perfect. Right. It's like, you're, you, why are you yelling at me? Why are you singling me out? You know, why, you know, and this whole deflection of the real issues, you know, right. Like we're seeing in politics, right. The name calling starts up and no, I'm not calling anybody a name. It's like, here's a question. Here's a problem. Can't you give me your take on the situation? And people don't, know the answers, but if they don't know the answers, they're afraid to say they don't know the answers because at the risk of maybe looking stupid or ignorant or ill-informed or what have you. And so they just ignore it. They call names and they say that the person is being, like you said, being racist, being a bigot, being whatever. And it absolutely makes you insane because that is not the case. It's a cop-out. You know, They're not dealing with real issues. And I think a lot of people today you know, talking about hitting with kid gloves I was talking about, right? <laughs> we have to do that with a lot of these employees today. You know, if you hire somebody for your business and they're not performing, you know, and you write them up and they still don't do their job and you try to fire them, holy cow. You know, it's like, it is not an easy thing to do. No. So what's an employer to do, right? I mean, do, do you fire them and then risk them trying to come back to it, a lawsuit and some hungry lawyer says, you know what? I think we can twist this around and we can get you a lot of money. That's a whole nother problem that's way for this yeah, discussion, absolutely. you know, the legal worry. aspect, but you have to worry about that. Yeah. You have to worry about so many things that a generation ago, we didn't have to worry about. You don't do your job, you get fired, period. End of story. Go find another job if you can and don't call me for a uh, referral. Simple but as that. I'll tell you what, what's really dangerous about this is when, when you have, first of all, when you label everybody. And you know, we can't just be people at a business working a certain job. Everybody has to be labeled, put into categories. When you're afraid, when you're afraid to go out and start asking questions of other people, see the best book I think ever written on this topic was Gavin DeBecker's The Gift of Fear. And now people are afraid to ask questions within themselves. Okay, if, if I'm starting to, if I'm out in public and I see something, ooh, this just doesn't feel right. Oh, I must be just, I, I must be. You know, paranoid. I, you know, my paranoid. Am I? Am I? Am I actually being racist? This person can't be like that just because I'm. I must be profiling them. When you can't ask yourself questions to keep yourself safe, that's where you you keep yourself in situations. You know, you have that basic instinct. You have, and that's why I love about what Gavin DeBecker talks about is we're given this this gift of fear, and then we learn to push that gift aside and, and subside it and say, well, I must be just being paranoid because that's what my parents told me hey, these people were okay. Uh, you have to be able to ask those questions if you're going to keep yourself and your family or your organization safe. That's the second time I've heard about that book in the last few weeks. Somebody else mentioned that to me not that long ago, and I thought it was interesting because it's all about how fear is something that is a gift that we can use and should use to help keep us safe. Absolutely. And I and I guess that's kind of the gist of what, what the book is about. And I'm, I'm, I'm definitely going to have to get it and and read it because it's oh. it's very interesting. And I think you know, that's, that's a book that should be taught in school. You know, we have all these recommended readings in school and these books mean and very little, most of these kids give them a book that actually means something. They're going to learn something and take lessons from for the rest that could save them one day, especially females. I gave that book to my mom. I gave it to my daughter 
any woman that means something to me, I've bought that book probably 30, 40 times and given it away. That author's loving you. <laughs> <laughs> now, what, um, you know, for a company that's setting up a, a risk management program, uh, large, small, whatever, what, what information do you go and look at that they may not even know about themselves? Generally, it's the metrics. They don't, when I go in to set up a supply chain security program for an organization, for an organization, for example, and I start asking them questions, how many shipments do you have that leaves this facility a day? How many different carriers do you have? How many uh, destinations do you actually ship to? You start asking very specific questions. They don't know the metrics and they have to go somewhere to get that. And you're also going to see this with how many people come through that front door, how many are visitors, how many employees, how many times does somebody piggyback through a proxy door in a day? You start asking these questions, and generally they have the answers. They just have to go research. Nobody's ever really asked those questions before. And when you start asking those questions and they start giving you the metrics behind, uh, or I should say the data behind you know, these questions that you're asking, you can do so much with that data. And when, you know, I learned this a long time ago, and that was, uh, a manufacturing facility that was bringing drivers in. We had two security guards at one post. Well, the, the, the manufacturing facility, as they sometimes do, it kind of morphed and changed, and we still had two guys at one post or two security guards at one post. And then there was another door that used to only have one person. Now that was super busy. But if we didn't know the volumes of people coming through those doors, we were able to go back to the organization and say, okay, look, you know, this is what we've done. However, we need to change all this. But People who don't know, you know that kind of information, um, they can't make the changes. They can't, they can't grow and, and kind of um, balance out their organization because, and you're probably going to see this in cybersecurity a lot, because in order to make changes, I, I, you know, especially if you're, if, if you're uh, I always say when you're building an app or something, if you don't tell the coder exactly what you want or if you don't have the data or if they mm -hmm. can't extract that data from somewhere, they can't give you what you want. Right. No, it's so true. You and and to have the information to make an informed decision, that's what you need. And if you don't have it, well, you better go get it. You better figure out how you can get it, so you can begin to track it, and so you can start to make those informed decisions that are going to make a difference. Because otherwise, you're just you're guessing, right? It's like, well, I think we got more going over here, and I think this is what's happening because that's how it's always been, and I really didn't see anything different, right? And then you right. go down and you start analyzing footage and punches and traffic and, you know, every other metric that can be measured related to the situation, and now you can come back and it's like, oh, okay, now we have the hard numbers. Now it's like, all right, now it becomes a much easier process, but to get to that point isn't always easy, right? <laughs> it's not, but you have to have somebody there who knows the questions to ask. Right. So what is the first step? So what would be the first question or the first step that, uh, that an organization could take to begin improving uh, their safety and security programs? They have to know what they're trying to achieve. You know, that's the first thing they have to know. Begin because with the end in mind, kind of? Exactly. Start. At, well, there you go. Yeah. Start with the end in mind. When you know what you want to achieve, now you can kind of work backwards from that. But you actually, once you know where you want to, where you want to be or what you want to achieve, you can come all the way back to the beginning and say, now we need to know where we are. So let's conduct that security audit. And once you have that audit, now you start to collect that information. And now, you know, in a sense, I guess if we took this in our personal lives, we can say, look, I'm a little overweight. I want to get down to this weight. So I know where I want to go. 
now I come back and do my self-assessment. What made me at the weight I am? I can, and, and you know, what do I have to eliminate from my diet or what exercise do I have to, whatever it might be. Sure. You're not taking that on a larger scale for a business. You, you, now you know, okay, I, I, we had 42 accidents at our facility in this year. We need to bring that down to zero. How are we going to do that? So now you, know what you, now you know what your goal is, zero accidents. Now come back and do an audit and find out what was causing those. Get to the root cause of what was causing those accidents, and now you can put into place a better plan that's going to get you to where you want to be. Makes perfect sense. Well, oh, we're running out of time here, bud. Um, so what is the, we'll, we'll kind of end with a couple of things. So what do you see as the future for risk and crisis management right now? You know, I, I think the future is here. It's just going to get refined a little bit. When, when I look at the future of, of risk and crisis management, it's collaboration, and it almost goes back down to your network again. It's having the ability to collaborate to get information to help you make better business decisions or in a crisis to be able to make better decisions about that crisis. And in our global society, you have people in the U.S. who are responsible for regions around the world and – if, if you have a manufacturing facility or it doesn't really matter what it is, a supplier coming out of Indonesia, but you don't have any network or any way to collaborate in Indonesia and all of a sudden they have an earthquake, which happens often, uh, maybe even a tsunami, um, but you don't have anybody to contact there except for that one person they gave you as your POC. <laughs> you know, the, the one thing you'll find with organizations is we, we put together our crisis plans and in our crisis plans, we, we, assign people roles that they need to facilitate during an actual crisis. So let's say you, you have in Indonesia, uh, you have an earthquake plan because it does happen regularly there. And in your plan, uh, all of a sudden you actually have an earthquake, you know, that employee that was supposed to be your POC who's supposed to be at work, I guess, 24 seven, they were actually home when it happened. Now they have a personal crisis going on. Also, they don't really care about that business at that moment because they have to take care of their family and their livelihood. Right. And, now you can't get a hold of your POC and you are completely blind to what's happening out there. You can't get answers. Therefore, you can't make good business decisions. And as a security professional, you can't even, you know, one of the things that we are as consultants, as security practitioners, you can't even advise operations or the C-suite or anybody else what actions to take because you don't have the information that you need to make any kind of information, any kind of decision yourself. So what do you do when you have a situation like that is you go to, uh, the news, or, you know, you try to get your information from the internet, <laughs> getting it on the ground. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, you take the Thailand coup and, and, and the government coup a little, uh, a couple of years ago, um, you know, when, when that happened, you had the media, which was, of course, the media will always sensationalize things, make it worse than it actually is because they're trying to sell advertisement. But you also had social media, which was being very, uh, disinformed because the protesters wanted to make it sound like their cause was, was huge. So they were actually putting a lot of misinformation out there too. But, uh, you know, a platform like the International Crisis Room 360, it, you know, there was people on, in Thailand who were conducting crisis calls. So you could get real information from people on the ground that said, you know, they're bringing food to the protesters. It's actually quite peaceful. Every now and then there's a skirmish, which kind of just is, is for media more than anything else. Um, but, so tell us a little, I'm glad you mentioned that. Tell us a little bit uh, in the in the last couple of minutes here about sure. International Crisis Room 360, because that's how I've, you know, been interacting with you and some other people on there. What is, let our listeners know a little bit about that. So the International Crisis Room 360 was originally designed because a couple guys were at a conference and a major event had happened in Asia. And 
they, they each realized that they each had a little bit of information. And if they could just all get together and share that information, it actually led to some valuable information that allowed people to make, again, good business decisions. So they actually built a job board because this was in 1998. Um, and then they just shared information kind of on a board. But it evolved into a website now where people can get in there. They create groups. When a crisis actually happens, they can create a crisis room. And now anybody can start sharing information. So let's say I have an international organization and I've got people in four different countries in Asia, two different countries in Europe and Africa and South America. I can actually create a group just for my own teams. Everybody gets in there and starts sharing information. And it's like a virtual meeting room, basically. Yeah, it's very powerful. Except that, you know, you can't, it, it's, yeah, you're, you're putting information in there. Um, there's, but you can't video and chat and things like that. Like you will, you know, you'll be able to eventually do that, like in Protecting Beacons Hope. You just can't do it in ICF 360 yet. But even, you know, when you think of the future of, of, crisis and risk management, you know, look at platforms like Ushihidi. Uh, Ushihidi uh, during Haiti was used extensively and that's open source. People can get in there, they can set up Ushihidi uh, and start bringing in data points and start mapping those data points. And, you know, ICR360 was really kind of developed to do those same things. It's, it's allowing people to collaborate in a crisis, which is going to allow you to make good business decisions during that crisis. And kind of leads right back to what you said initially, which is, you know, networking is getting everybody together that is able to help, you know, solve the problem, solve the crisis, get through the crisis, whatever it happens to be. Absolutely. Because everybody who's, for example, everybody who's on ICF 360s, generally some kind of risk management, uh, a crisis professional, a security professional of some kind. Uh, so there's, there's just a wealth of people all in one place who can give you information that you need. That's awesome. So if our listeners are interested in learning more about you or Shadow Track 24-7 or Protecting Beacons of Hope, uh, where can they go? You can, uh, if you, one thing I, I, I don't, I have a very extensive LinkedIn network, so you can always reach me on LinkedIn at uh, George Wheeler. Um, I think it's LinkedIn.com, however it might be, forward slash George P. Wheeler. Um, and then, uh, but I've only got, I've, I'm, I'm almost at the 30,000 max, so some people might just oh, have wow. But um you know, I've got a Facebook, I have a Facebook page, it's uh, Facebook forward slash George Wheeler, or George Wheeler Jr. <laughs> Sorry about that, I'm not sure at the moment. Uh, just, I'll put the links in the in the notes, so that's fine. Okay. People okay. know how to get a hold of you. And you'll be able to get a hold of me at uh, protectingbeaconsofhope.com uh, or um, ICI360.com also. So any last thoughts for our audience today? You know, yeah, it's not just our organization's that need to be aware of uh, risk and crisis plans. It's every individual because of the things that happened this weekend. I probably would have said something different if we'd have had this call last weekend, but being with the country just went through in a sense, uh, but we'll never take away from what those local communities actually feel in, in, you know, in Dayton and in El Paso. But when you see those, when you see kind of the, the viciousness or the violence that, that one individual can bring to a community, um, you know, everybody has a responsibility to, to do something. Again, you know, I, 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 think, I think I said it earlier, if you don't know what your role is in a crisis, then you're going to become a victim. And that's why even when I'm walking around a mall or somewhere else like that, I'm always kind of looking like, if something happened right now, what would I do? And, you know, you don't do that all the time. Obviously, sometimes you let your laurels down. And some people even start thinking, well, I'm a security professional and I have all this training and I've got my sidearm. I've got all these things, you know, so I know exactly what I would do. But your role changes and you have to understand this. Maybe I'm, I'm at a restaurant by myself, 
my role could be different than if I'm there with my children or if I'm there with my wife. Uh, my role no longer is, I'm not going to, you know, if somebody starts shooting, I'm by myself. And, you know, if I'm within distance, if I have an opportunity to try to do something to eliminate that situation, I would. But if I'm there with my wife and kids, I might be looking to get them out of harm's way first. Absolutely. But, you know, you have to understand all of those situations. And I just want people to really pay attention kind of from now on and not, not let the next story take you away from what actually occurred. Take these lessons because they're not going away. And the next one will be more violent than the last one. And it may happen with more frequency or, you know, whatever it might be. And it may not just be the U.S. Look what's happening in Europe. We have so many, you know, things that shock us on a daily, weekly basis that people can't let themselves become so immune to, you know, the facts that these things happen and not get into the mindset of, you know, okay, that happened, you know, in that town, in that country, it's not going to happen here to my town in my city. And, you know, you and I are here to tell people that's absolutely the wrong approach. You have to understand that anything can happen at any point to anybody, anywhere, at any time. And I think once you, you get that through your head and you just, you know, like you're saying, you ask yourself some questions, you're out and about, if something were to happen, now what would I do? You don't got to do it all the time, but be a little bit you know, more proactive with asking yourself those sorts of questions so that you, I'm, what I always say is ask yourself the tough questions before you need the answers. That's and right. if you do that, you will be much more prepared than the person next to you who did not. And so maybe you'll survive, maybe they won't. Maybe that will give you an opportunity to assist somebody else, you know, whatever that happens to be, you know, and I'm just going to end with, you know, obviously it's, nothing that we can do. Obviously we offer our thoughts, we offer our prayers and, and, you know, we think about these, these victims and their families and, you know, nothing that anybody can say can do really anything to ease the pain, ease the grief, answer the questions that they have. Uh, but all we can do is as a society, as a whole, try to do the best that we can so that when things like this occur, we put ourselves in the best position to, reduce or eliminate any problems that we could face or those around us. And, and that's really all we, anybody can do on a daily basis. With anything. And I only, I only want to leave with one last thing. And that is sure. you know, when people hear me talk like that, a lot of times people say, well, you're paranoid or you must be stressed all the time because you're always thinking of these things happening. And the opposite is actually true. I'm not, I'm aware I'm not paranoid and I'm not stressed because I have a plan. So in a sense, it actually allows me to enjoy things more because it, I already know if something happens, what, you know, kind of what I would do because I've already kind of assessed the situation. Now, I've got years and years and years of training at doing this, but you know, anybody can start today when you realize, okay, if something were to happen right now, what would I do? Okay, and you think about it, and then, and then the thought is kind of gone. Now, you know, it's, it's just in your mind, and if something were to happen, again, through a lot of training, I suppose, you, know, you, you realize you'll start to respond certain ways. But I, I'm, I'm not stressed about this ever, really, because um, I'm just... Because you know what you would do. And I think, and that's the key takeaway, is that it'll actually reduce your stress. It won't increase it, because when you have a plan, guess what? Your fear is reduced. Your stress is reduced. You know how you're going to do it. It's like training for anything, or it's training for a marathon, or whatever it happens to be. If you train for it, you're going to know what to do when the time comes, and 
you forget about it until that happens, right? There's a little training in between. So, hey, George, I want to thank you so much for being on Safety Talk. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. And uh, you can always go to safetytalkpodcast.com for links uh, to past episodes. Uh, we also have uh, safety information that we call from a lot of different safety sources throughout the day. So there's always up-to-date information on that. And until next time, everybody, stay safe. Thanks for tuning in to Safety Talk. You can listen to past episodes and get the latest safety news at our website, safetytalkpodcast.com. Be sure to visit our other websites for free safety checklists and infographics. You can also sign up for free online self-defense training, learn about college campus safety, and find out more about Pete and how he can help educate your school or business through his speaking, workshops, seminars, and consulting. Subscribe to the Safety Talk podcast and never miss out on any new safety information. Until next time, stay safe.